This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal-Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Alex DeForge to talk about his new book, Testing the Literary Prose and the Aesthetic in Early Modern China. Welcome to New Books, Alex, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Sarah, for giving me the chance to talk about the modern prose essay. Of course. So I was hoping we could begin with the story of how this book came to be, because it is, at least um, as I understand it, a little different in terms of the temporal scope from your first book, uh, Media Sphere Shanghai. And you also begin the acknowledgments of this book by saying, this book was slow to get started. So I'm curious, when did the idea for this book come about? And what was the process of this book coming to be like? Right. Yes, it, it did take a while. Um, the first time that I encountered a modern prose essay, um, which most people will probably know as an eight-legged essay, and we can talk about that that terminology um, in more detail later, was in graduate school. I was part of a rhetoric discussion group, a reading group on Chinese rhetoric. And um, Andrew Plax brought in um, a modern prose essay, which we read and discussed, um, looking at the rhetorical devices that were characteristic of that particular essay. And I was really fascinated by the idea of the modern prose essay as a genre, but um, that particular essay didn't grab me <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so I took a detour into um, installment fiction set in Shanghai, and that was the, the focus of my first book. And it wasn't until about six years later um, when I was a postdoc at Pembroke Center at Brown, um, participating in a seminar on aesthetics and politics where one of the things that we were discussing um, was guwen, um, or classical prose, and the idea of literary technique as its own kind of politics. And I gradually came to this uneasy awareness that um, guwen, this classical prose or archaic prose, really defined itself against shiwen or modern prose, also known as the examination essay or the eight-legged essay. And to a certain extent, um, that uh, modern prose essay was the substrate out of which um, guwen could, could grow as a genre. 
And it was still a few years after that um, until I happened to be in a subway station in Shanghai. And um, while waiting for the train, I looked at a shelf of books at the bookstore in the station and came across um, two books that were crucial to um, my actually realizing this interest in the modern prose essay. Um, one was a collection of essays by Zhou Zoren, which included his, his work, um, Lun Baguan, um, discussing the eight-legged essay or the modern prose essay, and also a book by um, Hong Duqing, published in 2006, um, titled Ming Dai Baguan Shi Tan, um, a kind of initial history of um, Ming, Dai, uh, uh, Ming, Ming Dynasty um, eight-legged essays. Um, and these two books were kind of crucially important because first they gave me a sense of how someone writing in the May 4th era could nonetheless think that the modern prose essay um, the examination essay was actually an interesting genre um, worth studying. And the second book, um, Gong Lu Qing's um, book, published in 2006, was kind of the beginning of a wave of interest in the examination essay, the modern prose essay, in, um, in China. Um, and it had um, kind of an immense amount of uh, material um, and also a very interesting narrative that argued that these essays were worth uh, paying attention to. And what Gong Tuqing's book in particular gave me was kind of an entrance into the genre. And previously, I thought of the essay as interesting in, um, in theory, but when it actually came to sitting down and, and reading them, I hadn't come across an essay that interested me yet. And Gong Tuqing's book was really... Um, an entree into the field um, in that sense. Um, and then from that point on, it was just a question of um, reading essays and more essays and um, books from the Ming and Qing that were written for candidates um, who wanted to learn how to write essays better. Um, and these books are scattered in um, many different libraries around the world because there wasn't always a sense that this was something, these were materials that were worth preserving. Yeah, great. I, I, so I, what I'm taking from that is if you are in a train station, go to the bookstore. Yes. That's <laughs> one takeaway. I'm sure um, you, you mentioned that Plax brought in some essays. I'm sure he was quite disappointed that, that you were not taken from them, or was that sort of the intention of the class? Um, yeah, so it, um, I don't think I expressed my disappointment at the time, certainly. <laughs> You know, I think I, I read the essay and we discussed the essay and I thought, well, this is interesting, but um, but it doesn't really grab me. And mm. it was one of the classic um, essays. It was an essay by Wang Ao, which um, has has been translated. Um, but it's it's kind of a typical, it was a typical eight-legged essay in the sense that it represented kind of the ideal type of what an eight-legged essay might be. And to me, often the most interesting essays are the ones that begin from that um, as a starting point, but then go on to complicate it or call it into question or make it um, more problematic. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. So I think we're, we'll, we will definitely return to that when it comes to some of the, the chapters in the book. And you mentioned ideal type, and we'll also come back to that. But I'm curious because you mentioned sort of um, the translation of the essays. And this book has an appendix which includes 
um, four different essays translated in full. And I was curious about that section. Was that something that you had always intended to be part of this book? Were there other essays that just didn't make the cut? (laughs) What was the decision process behind that? Because as you say, um, very early on in the book, very few of these essays have been translated into English. So before we talk more about the essays themselves, I wonder if you could say anything about the the translation process or the decision-making process that went behind that. Right. Yeah. So I I would say that in in doing the research for this book, I read a lot of essays, most of which were interesting in at least one way or other. Um, the The four that I selected um, to include translations in full um, kind of exemplified different aspects of the essay that I thought were important to highlight. Um, so in one case, there's an essay that's really not parallel at all. And we generally think of eight-legged essays as, as being rigidly parallel. This is an example of an essay that just basically wanders off um, in its own direction and has only the most minimal, tiny elements that are parallel. Um, so that is the argument for, for including um, Feng Fu wrestling the tiger. Um, there's another essay which um, really is exemplifies the involutionary parallelism. So parallelism that's not simple, but ext- actually extremely complex um, at different levels. Um, and then one of the essays I included because it's written in the voice of um, a zither, um, basically. <laughs> and the idea with, with these essays often is um, one thinks that you're supposed to be writing in the voice of the sages, but actually you could be writing in any number of different voices. And what really grabbed me about that essay was the fact that um, for the most part, the author is, is speaking in the voice of a musical instrument um, rather than for a person. So in a sense, I tried to find essays that I thought would interest readers and give a sense of the different kinds of essays that are that are out there. Yeah, thank you for, for explaining that. This was one of my favorite parts of the book, the the um, the rich examples you give and the different essays you talk about and give us a sense of and allow us to read. Um, as you say in the book, uh, Shawen accommodated a striking range in content and tone. <laughs> um, and I think you've just really encapsulated that by describing the essays that are included in full here. Um, but and you've already started us down this path um, in talking about what the modern prose essay or eight-legged essay is. Um, but I'm hoping you could say a little bit more about this. Um, what is a modern prose essay in the Ming Qing context? Like, what do we need to know about it? Right. There, there's so many different lenses that we could mm-hmm. <laughs> approach mm-hmm. that from. Um, there's the question of sociologically speaking, um, this is what um, young men who are being educated are spending most of their time doing. Um, there is um, the formal question where um, we think about how is the essay defined against um, other literary genres? Um, how do you know that you're reading an elegant essay? Um, and in this sense, um, probably the key thing is um, the introductory the introductory sentence or two, which um, attempt to encapsulate 
the section of the text that is being analyzed. And then the sentences after that, that transition potentially into the voice of a character in the classic texts, um, or also could just remain in, in the voice of the author. Um, and this is something that I think is, is probably really important to know about these essays is that the voice can often be indeterminate or um, shift back and forth um, between positions. And in that sense, one of the things that I've likened it to um, in the book is free and direct discourse mm-hmm. um, in the 19th and 20th century novel in, in Europe. Um, the idea that you're kind of simultaneously seeing things from one perspective and from another perspective. Um, so I think from question of form, um, that would be um, quite important. Great. Thanks for that. And then thinking about um, your approach <laughs> to yeah. the modern prose essay, um, I will quote from the book a little bit here. You say yeah. in the book, my aim is instead to return literary practice, the actual work of writing, reading, and commenting to center stage. My focus throughout over a series of close reading of a variety of texts is on the processes by which features such as literary voice, parallelism, subjectivity, and aesthetic originality are constructed and interpreted in Shuen. And I'm curious about where this approach, you know, your aim sits within the way that these essays have been approached before. So how is, could you give us a sense of how what you're doing here is different from how prose has typically been looked at before, if it has been looked at (laughs) at all? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the first differences about my approach would be insisting on uh, reading these essays as part of um, Chinese literature. Mm -hmm. Um, They've received some indirect attention um, from historians, um, from sociologists, um, as kind of the objects that are produced and circulated as part of a governing process, an administrative process, um, selection of people, class reproduction, um, that kind of thing. And I think it's crucially important to keep that context in mind when reading the essays. But at the same time, this genre became so influential that it wasn't just used to select officials. It was also used, um, people could write autobiographical essays. Um, People could make philological arguments and aim to get those um, arguments read precisely because they were written in this essay genre. Um, So um, in that sense, it goes beyond um, the kind of sociological significance of the examination system and becomes a more general part of what um, educated individuals were were reading and writing during this period. And so I think one of the things that um, has been done in the English language scholarship has been this um, kind of setting out of uh, an ideal type for the essay. And this is, you know, if you had to pick one essay to read, you could read this essay. Um, And to to kind of draw again on the... um, the analogy of of Western music, you know, if if you were to say pick one piece out of the entire Western repertoire 
And you said, okay, we're going to do um, Bach's Brandenburg concertos. Nobody could argue with that. But at the same time, you know, there's so much else that is out there, much of which is in direct reaction to that, in indirect reaction to that tradition. Um, so my interest is kind of in looking not at the essay as, as a seamless whole, but rather giving more of a sense of the diversity um, and the nuance, um, the, the room for individual authors to, to basically make the essay form their own. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found most useful to sort of think through as I was reading um, your book was something you say in the introduction when you're talking about the genre, the the ideal type. Um, you say that it's important to remind ourselves of the range and room for originality in a genre that is known primarily for its formal restrictions. And just thinking about, um, yeah, as you were laying out there, <laughs> the space that is still available um, within within the form. Yeah, and I think the also the formal restrictions. One of the things that surprised me most as I read more and more essays and more and more books about how to write essays was um, the extent to which these restrictions are um, not stipulated from above but rather developed um, either one could say from below or from a kind of intermediate space where examiners and candidates are, are interacting. Um, so that if you, if you actually look at Ming and Qing um, legal and administrative codes, there's really absolutely nothing that says that an eight-legged essay needs eight legs or that it needs to be regulated um, or that it needs to be in parallel prose. Um, there's no stipulation that it needs to be written in the voice of a sage um, or anything like that. Um, and so what you realize is that all of these things that we now take as, as typical of, of essays or typical of a majority of essays are in fact standards that develop kind of within, um, within the system um, rather and, and are subject to change constantly. So this year, or this examination cycle, you'll find a lot of people um, speaking in the voice of the sage. But next examination cycle, there may be a reaction to that. And people are thinking, oh, that's so 1591, <laughs> right? This is 1594 already. We do things differently. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is also a challenge for reading the essays because the fact that there is this fashion sense, um, this transition from cycle to cycle, or you know, like every three cycles or every four cycles, means that often essays that were considered valuable in 1591 were not considered that important 12 or 30 years later. Um, so there's a sense even already in the Ming and Qing that essays could be ephemeral and were not necessarily worth preserving past a three-year or a six-year cycle unless they were really the the most perfect examples in the genre. Mm -hmm. So you were the example you gave there um, of something <laughs> that um, a feature that would that might come through in a <laughs> in an imaginary um, examination year cycle 
is um, speaking in the voice of the sage, which brings us really nicely into chapter one. Uh, and, but before we move there, I just want to note that all of really what we've been talking about so far is from the introduction of this book, which is itself <laughs> extremely rich and detailed and really wonderfully frames the book that follows. And the chapters of the book then really serve to articulate a more nuanced idea and understanding of prose aesthetics that is really rooted in um, the introduction, which we've been talking about. Um, but moving then to chapter one and the trope of representative speech. Um, it's come up here and there, but could you flesh that that idea out a little bit? What is this trope of representative speech? How far back does it go? Right. So the, the basic task of the candidate is um, the, te- the candidate is given a selection from a canonical text, usually from the four books, um, sometimes longish, like several paragraphs, sometimes extremely short, a couple of sentences or even one or two words. And it's the candidate's job to write an essay that develops the points um, from that selection from the canonical text. One approach to that analysis is to, as a candidate, speak in the voice of whatever character happens to be in that section of text. And so if you're given a selection, if your topic is something that Confucius said, then you could speak in the voice of Confucius. Um, If, on the other hand, your topic was in the voice of someone who is less worthy, you could opt to speak in that person's voice, in which case it wouldn't really be speaking for the sages as much as speaking for some character um, in the canonical texts. Um, but this is a this is an approach that now is often considered to be a defining feature of the modern prose essay. Um, but in fact, When we look back to the Ming Dynasty, we find many essays that make use of this approach, but also many essays that do not. And when we look at the um, kind of how-to books on writing essays from the Ming Dynasty, we don't actually find a real emphasis on writing in another person's voice or representative speech. It appears as you know, one technique among others. You know, you have the technique of suddenly changing direction. You have the technique of writing from the host's point of view or the guest's point of view. You have the technique of using representative speech. Um, These are all kind of individual techniques that one could use. And it's not until actually um, the end of the 17th century that um, representative speech really becomes identified as the foremost characteristic of um, the examination examination essay, the modern prose essay. So there's a good um, 300 years there where people are writing essays and making use of this technique or not making use of this technique without thinking of it as being foundational or definitional. Um, but then when um, the Mingshu is, is written up at the turn of the 18th century, um, we find in um, the discussion of the examination essay as a genre, this idea that people wrote essays in the voices of the ancients. Um, And then that becomes regularly repeated um, over the course of the Qing dynasty. So in a sense, what we're seeing is something that's originally a question of literary technique, 
um, being reframed as the condition of writing. It's the kind of frame within which um, the whole essay is is meant to be produced. Um, and I think this has some very interesting kind of political ramifications because it heightens the stakes of the essay writing. Um, it says, you know, this is the place where we are going to have struggles about what it, what the sages were actually saying. It's go- It's going to be the main place where we're going to fight about this. And that in turn has um, a tremendous effect on the definition of or def- redefinition of literati as a class during this period. And that comes up a few different times um, in later chapters as well, the sort of the literati <laughs> struggling to define themselves as a class, as you say here, um, especially in the context of the exam where <laughs> the literati are supposed to be, or the mode at least they take with this um, with this trope of mere actor <laughs> status. Um, so you mentioned those struggles. Um, and when I think of struggles, and this has come up um, a little bit earlier in our conversation, I really do think of chapter two, where, where you take on the issue of style. Um, and I say that struggles reminded me of this chapter, because it really did um, make me laugh a little bit. When you talk in the beginning of the chapter about ministers of rights memorializing about wanting to rein in examination candidates who push the style envelope, wanting candidates to write essays that are simple and straightforward, and emperors endorsing such memorials or getting actively involved themselves, and then candidates just flat out ignoring this, <laughs> these guidelines and still placing well or the flashiest essays making it into being chosen for canonical collections of examinations. Um, It really does beg the question, as you say, the chapter, who is in control? (laughs) Um, So I I said I found the examples quite quite humorous, but this this is serious business. Um, So why does style matter? Um, and, And, you know, what can we learn about the question, who has the authority to articulate standards around style? Yeah, I think um, one of the reasons that style matters is is actually just a a very simple um, issue that the examiners are faced with that they have thousands of candidates for a handful of positions, and on the face of it, this examination system is supposed to be about ideological reproduction. Um, it's ensuring that we are selecting individuals who have mastered the classics, who will not deviate from an appropriate um, moral standpoint um, in um, in doing their work as officials. But the problem is that if you have identified um, a single standard and 10,000 candidates all write to meet that standard... <laughs> <laughs> you have no way to choose among these candidates. They're, they're all morally correct, at least on paper. Um, so the style comes in because you do have to have some way of saying, I'm going to pick this person and, and not that person. And style presents itself, at least in a way, as being um, more neutral than ideology in that if if you were to write something saying that um, Mencius is terrible and I disagree with everything that he says, there's no way that you could actually select that essay with a, with a straight face. 
so what we need is a way to distinguish between these various candidates that gets away from, do we agree with Mencius or do we not agree with Mencius? And starts asking the question of how exactly do we agree with Mencius? <laughs> how do we show that we agree w- with Mencius in a way that is interesting and, and eye-catching? And again, to go back to the, the numbers question, if you were selecting if you were selecting 10 candidates from a pool of 12, it would be it would make sense to play it conservative because you don't want to be one of the two that are disqualified. Mm-hmm. But if the selection is 10 candidates out of a pool of 1,000 or 10,000, the calculus changes a little bit and it starts to make sense to really go out on a limb with your style. You might not get selected, but then again, all of those other people who don't write eye-catching essays aren't going to get selected either. Um, so there are plenty of eye-catching essays that that failed, certainly, and we don't know about them because they weren't preserved. <laughs> um, but there are some some really brilliant examples of, of that are preserved. And then one of the interesting things is that this starts out in style. Um, you know, it starts out with people writing essays that are stylistically challenging. But inevitably, it bleeds over into the ideology as well. Um, so that by the time we get into the middle of the 16th century, um, people are not only reading Zhuangzi uh, for stylistic inspiration, they're also starting to kind of work a little bit of Zhuangzi into their interpretations of hmm. the Confucian texts. And this drives um, certain people crazy, like William um, <laughs> Wu, for example, writing 150 years later says, this is just crazy. People are using Zhen, which is, you know, kind of true. Mm-hmm. This, this character is so important in Taoism, it's nowhere to be found in the four books. And I read that and I was like, what? It's not in the four books. And I went back and he's right. It's not in the four books. But people are working it into their exam essays and not only working it in from the side, but actually making it a, a mm. main focus. Um, so um, it similarly, um, emph- the influence of, of Chan Buddhism, obviously Wang Yangming thought, uh, we can see this kind of scattered um, throughout essays um, in the beginning in the 16th century, but then going on into into the Qing as well. So it starts out as a question of style, but then it ends up as a, an ideological question um, as well. Um, and if you're the minister of rights or the kind of assistant to the minister of rights, you can make all the proclamations you want, but it's the examiners who are reading the essays who actually have to make the call. Um, there's no way that as minister of rights, you're going to be able to review all of those choices. <laughs> absolutely. What? Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. Uh, ben, you, I guess as a candidate, you need to stand out somehow, uh, which I guess brings us then to one of the ways that you talk about candidates, you know, finding ways to stand out is through parallelism. Or, or non-parallelism, um, as you when you know when you were describing the eight-legged essays, um, we ought, very often think of them as being <laughs> parallel. Mm, yeah. uh, but in this chapter, you you talk you take and you talk about parallelism, not as an a priori, not as an a priori, nor as a settled conclusion, but as something that, as you you know, you show throughout the rest of the book, something that. 
um, has a history and comes from somewhere and has a context. Um, so one of my favorite parts about chapter three then um, is that this approach allows you to include moments of off balance, um, moments that are that or moments that might seem not parallel, but then the parallelism comes back in in the last in the last piece. Um, you know, essays that deliver the balance right at the end. Um, and as you were describing your interest in modern prose essays initially, you know, you were talking about um, essays that that seem to deviate from the norm and here then that is essays that are not parallel. Um, so I'm wondering if there are any examples that you want to talk about or you know flesh this out with. Are there any essays that are slightly off balance um, or unusually balanced um, that you talk about in this chapter or elsewhere in the book that you really think encapsulates what you're doing here? Yeah, so uh, I think the two of the translated essays at the end um, give a good sense of the, um, of the extremes um, in that one of them, as I mentioned previously, is, is kind of straightforward. It's this narration of, of Feng Fu's um, struggling with, with the tiger. Um, so that essay, as you're reading it, you're kind of thinking, where is the parallelism? And you can kind of pick at certain spots and you can say, okay, well, if, if I were forced to say, are there four bits that are parallel here? Um, there are in fact four phrases that are parallel, but out of the entire essay, it's, it's, it's almost nothing. Um, the, and then there's um, an essay, which is extremely um parallel in an involutionary sense um, in that the body of the essay is, is divided into two halves and the two halves correspond in a sense, but they correspond in some places and they don't correspond in others. So that if you were, if you were reading, um, if you're reading the first half of the essay, you might be thinking as you go along, this is the part that's parallel and this is the part that's not. And then once you get to the second half, you realize that the second half is mirroring all the parts that weren't parallel in the first half. Um, but then um, the parts that are parallel within the second half do not mirror uh, the first <laughs> half. So when you kind of, if you have both of those possibilities, as a reader, you're really thrown into this position where every time you are not sure whether whether it's parallel or not, you don't know whether it's eventually going to be recuperated as a parallel structure mm-hmm. or whether it's it's not going to until you finish the essay. Um, and so I think that experience is a very, it's kind of, when we think of essays as being eight-legged and parallel, it, we, we're kind of looking at um, the judgment after the fact. And if we see it printed on a page with punctuation, um, it can be very clear. You just take one look at it and it's clear that it's parallel. But of course, when, when these essays were written and read in the Ming and Qing, they were unpunctuated. They weren't broken down using line breaks. Um, so when you first look at it, you're just seeing a block of text and you have to create the, the mm-hmm. line breaks in your mind as, as you go along. So this idea that it could be parallel, but it could not be parallel, or it could be parallel in this particular way, um, makes it 
um, very challenging for the reader um, and uh, makes it possible to, you know, once, once you have the ability to startle the examiner as a candidate, you're in a good position. Uh, because, I mean, we all know from, from grading papers, once you get to the 50th paper in an evening, <laughs> your eyes are drooping. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I think there's also a, um, a, um, an essay um, that I translate in the introduction um, that's um, on the topic of, of Zengxi and his his fondness for um, jujubes mm-hmm. or dates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one is kind of a nice intermediary position between the other two, I would say, in that there's a reasonable amount of parallelism. Um, so that it's recognizably um, eight-legged, you could say. But there are also some interpolations of um, uh, um, indicators of, um, of time, for example. Like, okay, now we're talking about the period when, when Zengzi was alive. Uh, now we're talking about the period when Mencius was alive. And those interpolations are not, not parallel. So they kind of punctuate the, the text in, in that sense. Um, they stand out from Mm -hmm. um, the parallelism around them yeah Yeah. that's i that was another essay that (laughs) was a particular favorite of mine from the beginning Um, and what you're talking about in these in these chapters but in this one in particular is really a very active and engaged like the essays really require a very active and engaged um, form of reader of and, and readership and reading practices on on behalf of the behalf of the the examine the examiner um, which you don't always get um, which you don't always see I suppose emphasized so much in discussions of reading in this period um, so that I, I particularly love that that part right yeah um, Ai Ying, who's um, one of the one of the guys that I rely on heavily um, from the early early 17th century um, kind of critic, um, writer of exam essays, immensely influential, even though he himself didn't get very far in the system. <laughs> uh, you know, he has he has a um, a preface to one of his collections of essays where he complains that it was clear that his essays didn't get read all the way through <laughs> because the examiner stopped punctuating them at a certain mm. point. Um, so yeah, there is this sense that um, it's, it's key um, being an, being an active, an active reader. Um, and actually the cover art for the book has um, is a, Kind of manuscript copy of um, an essay written on um, Xi Xiangji, the Western Chamber, mm-hmm. um, which is a story in and of itself, writing about <laughs> about a play rather than about a classic <laughs> text. Um, and you know, the reader has gone through and marked up and punctuated so that the line breaks are clear, but also indicated, you know, these are the the key words in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like scribbles in the margins, like how do you write this character again? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Um, so those those traces when when you can find them are, are very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the front certainly sort of underscores the 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 amount of labor and work <laughs> that went yeah. into reading these. Um, it's completely marked up with red, <laughs> just yeah. to, um, so you can really see. Um, this was this was very possibly not the fiftieth essay of the evening. This was my, yeah, maybe right. was near the beginning of the pack. Yeah. 
Right. Great. So this brings us to chapters four and five. Um, and I'll just sort of summarize some of the things that you, how you lay these chapters out. Um, as you say, at the end of chapter three, these chapters show how the competitive dynamics of the examination system as a whole were such that future generations of candidates who aspire to pass at the highest level or make a name for themselves as master of the modern prose genre saw conventional forms not as literal models for their own work, but as stylistic givens to work off of or against. So chapter four looks at the writing of the self in prose, the writing of I, first-person pronouns, in prose essays. Uh, Chapter five, very much relatedly, looks at the tension and relationship between (laughs) candidates needing to be anonymous and wanting to establish themselves as distinctive individuals through literary means. Now, these are, as with the rest of the book, really rich chapters, Um, (laughs) but in the interest of time, Is there anything that you really want to emphasize about either of these chapters um, before we move on to talk about the epilogue? Because I do want to touch on the epilogue. Yeah. So I think that um, in each of these chapters looks at the question of um, writing the self or Mm -hmm. um, kind of constructing a distinctive individuality um, from a different perspective. Um, I think maybe if I had to stress one thing, it would be to say that when writing about the formation of the self in um, early modern Europe, uh, there's a strong tradition of looking at connections between um, interiority, the development of interiority, and um, the cultural marketplace, um, the development of capitalism, and, and so on. And what I would see here is a situation where um, interiority develops not only through um, engagement with um, the market, but also, um, and perhaps even more crucially, with engagement with the examination system. And so the the task of kind of writing um, one's voice into an essay that so um, so many people were engaged in during this period, I would say, um, plays a crucial role in the formation of the kind of late Ming moment sensibility of, you know, speaking for oneself and putting oneself out there in a way that is convincing to to readers. Perfect. Thank you for that. And you mentioned early modern Europe, (laughs) the market. (laughs) Thanks. So thank you for setting us up so perfectly for the epilogue, (laughs) because the epilogue sort of takes a sort of a different approach, I might say. It sort of takes a broader perspective on the place that modern prose and the Ming and Shang occupy um, in the global history of literary work. Um, And I'm curious about one thing that you talk about specifically here which is diligence, which is something that I think a lot about um, as someone who's currently trying to write. Um, but you say diligence has has a transformative has sorry has transformative potential in the literary space, and it spreads to other genres in such a way as to redefine modern literary practice in China. And I'm, so I'm hoping you might unpack this a little bit for us. Why was diligence and the fact that you know? Um, exhortations to diligence are so ubiquitous in the Ming and Qing. Why is that important for the developments that come after? How does this sort of set set the stage for, for what is to come? 
Yeah. So I think this idea of diligence, as I talk about in the epilogue, I, I kind of presented in two different frames. One is the frame mm-hmm. of kind of the Chinese literary sphere, and the other is a broader kind of world historical frame. And from it, within the literary sphere, um, I see it as um, a different attitude towards, um, towards literary texts, um, where you are... Um, you work very hard to break them down, to analyze them, to figure out how they work um, as, you know, almost in a a mechanical sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You look for devices, um, things like that. And we see this most clearly um, in um, in commentaries to um, fiction, to vernacular fiction and also to drama. Um, So that's, you know, this is something that is always striking for students who are not familiar with Chinese literature to see how carefully a commentator will take a novel, (laughs) an individual chapter of a novel and say, okay, how many times does the club get featured in Mm -hmm. this um, tiger beating episode? Uh, You know, whose, whose point of view is this told from? Um, You know, when is there a shift from this person's point of view to that person's point of view? Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of very close engagement with the text, uh, I would argue, grows out of this idea of um, mastery of literary devices as a means to um, to write essays that will that will make your point, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, get your point across in terms of the the broader kind of world historical sweep. I think one of um, Alexander Woodside has really um, done a nice job of explaining um, the broad significance of the civil service examination system um, in um, in the early modern world and even into the modern world. I think what what I would focus on is um, really this idea that uh, elites should be working hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, which from the the writings of um, British commentators in the 17th century, <laughs> this is a completely new idea to them. No, 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 no. <laughs> that is not how. Yeah. <laughs> that is not how we live. <laughs> right. And, and some are appalled, right? Like mm-hmm. Daniel, Daniel Defoe is, 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 um, is really nasty about it. <laughs> but there are other people who are really intrigued and they say, you know, our elites kind of lie around, they, they play dice and they hunt and they drink. Um, whereas in China, people are, you know, carefully researching the texts mm-hmm. and deliberately discussing um, the, uh, their work and so on. Um, obviously, most of this is written by people who hadn't ever attended um, a drinking party in, in China. Uh, but that idea that... Um, it's it's not only the the people, the populace that should be working, but that everyone at every level needs to be it needs to have their nose to the grindstone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is is a concept that actually becomes important in the nineteenth and twentieth century um, in in Europe and the United States as well. Mm-hmm. I remember showing um, 
a class of undergraduates once, and there are several different versions of this. But you know, the the what did Qing emperors do with their days, and mm. how and sort of different like pie charts or different graphs, and so much of it is taken up by actual work. And I remember <laughs> showing that to undergraduates, which their response was, "But but they're the emperor. <laughs> why why?" What, what, what do you mean they 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 did things? Um, surely part of being the emperor is the fact that you just get to, I don't know, laze around all day. Um, what is this work they were doing? Um, but uh, there are certainly some really interesting um, parallels and differences that you get into in the in the epilogue here. So with this, we come to the end of your book and the end of our conversation. <laughs> so thank you so much, Alex, for taking oh, the time you. to talk with me about it. And all I really have left to ask then is the traditional final question. What are you working on now? Or what are you working on next? What is occupying your time at the moment? Yeah, so I think um, the I think the epilogue maybe gives a sense of the direction that I'm headed in right now. Mm. Um, I think I'm very interested in the question of how the world of the, the Ming and Qing connects to um, the world of today uh, in the kind of long durée perspective. Um, we talk a lot about um, being in a kind of new era of surveillance capitalism Mm-hmm. now globally and i think there are some important things that we can learn from looking back at at the ming and Qing about um what that um what the distinctive characteristics of a surveillance capitalism um, or a late capitalist mode might be um, and i think two of the points that i'm really wrestling with at the moment um are the problematic of cultural capital mm-hmm. um because it's a term that is used a lot for 19th and 20th century and into 21st century um, Europe and the United States. Um, But I don't think it works really well. Um, It works much better for the Ming and Qing because cultural capital, as it's often talked about for Europe and the United States, is something more on the order of cultural resources. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not um, it's not individuals investing cultural capital in order to earn more cultural capital. It's more a question of converting your cultural resources into an actual um, material capital. Um, and we see this because up until recently, um, most cultural production um, in Europe and the United States was in the hands of a relatively small number of people. It wasn't a class. It was individuals, it was a profession, it was authors and journalists and, and so on. And the contrast with, with Ming and Qing is, is quite striking in that um, people who are writing examination essays um, are a class, they're not a profession. Um, it's not only are all the men in the class writing these essays and reading these essays and grading these essays and so on, but many of the women in that class as well are taking responsibility for raising their children to be able to read and write these essays. Um, and that's something that I think is, if, if I had a chance to rewrite the book, I would really dive into the question of um, gender, not only the question of how um, the exam system 
constructs gender, um, but also the place of women readers, writers, and and teachers um, within the household, uh, which I think is crucial. Uh, the so I think that the Ming and Qing, the way in which cultural capital actually works as capital in the Ming and Qing, producers writing for other producers, um, prioritizing winning cultural capital rather than exchanging cultural resources for material resources, I think has a lot to say for the 20th, 21st century now that you know everyone is, quote unquote, a producer and mm-hmm. on the internet, um, um, whether it's you know Twitter or Instagram or, or whatever. Um, the other aspect of um, that I think the Ming and Qing speaks to is um, this idea of involution, um, the neijuan, that mm-hmm. um, has been a popular topic in China for the last four or five years. Um, and I think one of, it, it's kind of unsurprising that that would hit, um, that that would hit me because I have been talking about involutionary parallelism mm-hmm. and the way in which the, the parallelism can itself be involutionary. One of the things that I noticed in those essays is that the involutionary parallelism as a formal feature is often linked to the construction of interiority, um, kind of an interior space, a subjectivity um, in the essays. And so that kind of um, made me think a little bit about this idea of neijian as we have it now. Um, It's often talked about in terms of people working harder, um, being kind of pressed by society into um, becoming kind of model workers and um, participating in the rat race. But I think that equally important is the the sense that the work-leisure divide is being completely renegotiated mm-hmm. um, in under surveillance capitalism. So it's not just a question of involution neijian because you're at the office from nine to nine. Um, the question is, what are you doing when you're not in the office? Or what are you doing when you're in the office, but you think that you're just surfing the web or mm-hmm. doing something like that? Because under surveillance capitalism, that activity that we generally would think of as leisure turns out to generate as much, if not more value than the quote unquote work that we're actually doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the labor then has is starting to have a different meaning in that it's no longer something where the worker has a goal in mind and strives towards that goal and the capitalist benefits from that goal-oriented work. It's more that labor is pretty much every single thing that we do, in a sense, to the extent that it generates information um, and that that can then be um, vacuumed up and um, used in uh, a surveillance capitalist system. Uh, so I think in that sense, the exam essays have, um, the modern prose essays have an important lesson for us in that uh, they really show how involution is not just kind of a tightening of screws, but it's actually a folding together of um, things that um, originally we may have thought of as being separate. They're actually kind of worked together in this um, very complicated way that makes them um, hard, if not impossible, to pick apart. 
So it sounds like there might be more essays in your future in, ter- in terms <laughs> <Possibly>. of reading, <laughs> in terms of what Possibly. you are reading. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a fabulous project, very far reaching and, and involving many different spheres, I imagine. Um, so very, my very best of luck with, with the wrestling of that going forward, um, as you described it. So I hope the wrestling continues to go well. Thank you. Um, and I look forward to, to reading it <laughs> one day. But again, thank you so much for, for talking about this work, um, this result of your labor <laughs> with me today. No, th- thank you. It's a wonderful chance to talk. <laughs>